Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to today's MitoAction Monthly Expert Series. My name is Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. We're honored to have with us today, Dr. Peter McGuire, to discuss the insights into lessons that have been learned related to mitochondrial disease and COVID-19. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash COVID lessons. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We'll do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Dr. Peter McGuire received his bachelor's in psychology from Villanova University, a master's in microbiology and immunology from New York Medical College, and an MBBCH with honors from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. After completing a combined residency in pediatrics and medical genetics at Mount Sinai Medical Center, he was awarded a fellowship in biochemical genetics from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genzyme. After completing his training, he remained as a junior faculty member in the program for inherited metabolic diseases at Mount Sinai. Dr. McGuire is board certified in pediatrics, clinical genetics, and biochemical genetics. In 2010, Dr. McGuire moved to the National Institutes of Health to join the Physician Scientist Development Program to accelerate his translational research program. He was appointed to the position of tenure track investigator in 2016. Throughout his career, Dr. McGuire has been focused on improving the care of patients with disorders of mitochondrial met metabolism. By combining his training in immunology and biochemical genetics, he fashioned a translational research program to understand host pathogen interactions in disorders of mitochondrial metabolism. His NIH clinical center protocols, the NIH mini study, is the first organized effort to study viral infection, immune function, and disease progression in patients with disorders of mitochondrial metabolism. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter McGuire. Thank you. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Um, and also, I would just like to say thank you to all the families who have come to see us over the years um, here at the NIH. You are certainly a very important part of our research program and really partners in, in what we do. And so today, I'm actually going to share with you a lot of data um, that we have generated in partnership with our families and things that we essentially have learned during these uh, difficult times during the COVID-19 pandemic um, that I hope will be helpful um, to the community um, in terms of you know, helping manage um, their disease as well as maybe even those of a loved one. Um, and, and unfortunately for further pandemics which might come um, down the road. Um, so I am the head of something called the mini section, uh, which stands for the metabolism, infection and immunity section here at NHGRI at the National Institutes of Health. And um, 
my section is very interested in understanding um, host pathogen interactions in, in children with mitochondrial disease or disorders of mitochondrial metabolism. So what do I mean by host pathogen interactions? That's just basically a fancy term for infection. And in general, you know, the infections that, that children with disorders of mitochondrial metabolism are infected with are essentially viral infections or bacterial infections, or sometimes fungal infections if they have like indwelling lines or catheters or things like that. So how do we do that? We do that, as I mentioned, in partnership with families. So we have clinical research where we invite families to come to the NIH, or we conduct at-home studies, which many of you may have participated in, which I'll tell you about. Um, we come up with hypotheses or questions essentially of, of you know, kind of what's going on based on what we observe. And then to answer those questions, we develop model systems. And our ultimate goal is to develop treatments. And those treatments could either be, you know, drugs or interventions or even changes in medical practice that basically can help improve um, the well being of individuals with mitochondrial disease. So, why do we care so much about infection in mitochondrial diseases? Well, as it turns out, and, and many you know, individuals with mitochondrial disease or caregivers will know this because they've had experience with this, is infection um, can be pretty serious. Um, so sepsis and pneumonia are two of the most common causes of death in children with mitochondrial disease. Um, sepsis is one of the top five admitting diagnoses um, in children with mitochondrial disease. We did a study a couple of years ago where we found out that children with mitochondrial disease do experience recurrent infections. And many of those infections are actually respiratory infections or viral respiratory infections. So viruses are a really um, you know, important factor in the health and well-being of children with mitochondrial disease. Uh, infection can also cause episodic neurodegeneration or something we call metabolic strokes. Um, in children with mitochondrial disease. So there is definitely a well-founded, you know, concern and fear about infection in certain children with mitochondrial disease who can develop this episodic neurodegeneration or disease progression, essentially. Um, and the COVID-19 pandemic has really presented a threat um, to patients with mitochondrial disease because of this potential deleterious relationship with viral infection. So metabolic decompensation is a, uh, a medical state um, that it can occur uh, in, in individuals with mitochondrial disease where you can actually have life-threatening bioenergetic failure. Um, and this can happen during viral infections or bacterial infections. And individuals can develop things like lactic acidosis and disease progression. Their, their disease, even though it may progress along one timeline, may actually progress even faster as a result of infection. So they kind of jump ahead in their timeline of disease because of infection. Um, during an infection, they can develop things like organ failure, organ dysfunction, such as liver failure. Um, they can get encephalopathy, encephalopathy, which means the brain can be affected. And then these metabolic strokes, which I mentioned, which is basically targeted areas of the brain where the neurons can actually die. And therefore, um, the individuals can develop exacerbation of their neurologic symptoms or new neurologic symptoms as a result. Um, Oftentimes, individuals may also be left with long-term complications. So there can be complications that occur during the illness and then complications, which we call sequelae, which can occur after the illness and persist. Um, during these episodes, 
the individuals may require extensive care, sometimes even ICU care, which we have a picture here. Um, just a general, this is just a general picture from Google. It's not a, it's not a specific patient, but what I think it does is kind of shows the, the level of care that can be required where you have things like dialysis and, you know, um, basically uh, ventilators to help the individual breathe as well as numerous IV infusions. I mean, th these can be very serious scenarios is what I'm trying to say, essentially. And viral infections can cause this. And unfortunately at this point, treatments for these episodes are limited. So we really have to, you know, try and focus on, you know, kind of strategies of not getting here in the first place, right? Not reaching this point. Okay. So one of the goals of the mini section and one of my goals as a physician is really to keep patients with mitochondrial disease healthy. So, um, Believe it or not, we've been in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic now for, you know, all, almost going on two years now. So um, this was a, a slide that I showed a long time ago when I spoke to MitoAction back in, I guess this was back in about 2020, um, just looking at the timeline of kind of the early parts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and some important timelines were, you know, in December when China kind of announced that um, there was kind of something going on of concern, you know, with regards to uh, a viral infection. Um, in January uh, of 2020, the WHO announced that um, they had recognized this new virus, they called it SARS-CoV-2, um, jumping ahead just a few months, you know, to March, um, there were more than 100,000 cases and um, you know, 4,000 deaths in over 114 countries. So that kind of shows you from kind of recognition and notification to uh, kind of the explosion of the pandemic was a very short period of time. Um, and then in April, um, the cases jumped to you know, over 1 million worldwide. And also a little bit further into April, um, the number of global deaths jumped over 100,000. So this is, you know, this really reinforced um, the pandemic, the speed at which the pandemic, you know, kind of occurred. And back when I gave this talk in June of 2020, this is what the map looked like. So this is from Johns Hopkins um, um, uh, COVID Resource Center, Coronavirus Resource Center, where they monitor the world as well as the United States, and they have a world map, a United States map. And at that point, we were talking about, you know, 7.9 million cases um, and 434,000 um, global deaths. So that's from April to June. It went from 100,000 to over uh, 400,000 deaths. So once again, very quick progression, you know, kind of burned like wildfire throughout the world. And this is this week. So this was just a couple of days ago. Um, we are now, uh, you know, over 491 million cases worldwide, um, 6 million deaths. Um, but however, the map has changed a little bit because we have this new indicator here, which is vaccines. So the total number of COVID-19 vaccines administered to date um, are over 10 billion. Um, so this is something that has really made a big difference in terms of the course of the pandemic has not, you know, gotten rid of it completely, but in terms of, you know, survival and hospitalizations, it has really made a big difference um, in those two outcomes. Okay, so when this kind of came on, since we were studying viral infection or host pathogen interactions in mitochondrial disease to begin with, we were obviously naturally um, positioned to look at this in, in a very, um, 
robust way and come up with different ways of looking at the pandemic and how it impacts the mitochondrial disease community. So in February, March of 2020, um, via with the UMDF, we issued a COVID-19 position statement. And then um, we began a number of studies. So many of you are probably familiar with the mini study, which is a study that's been running now for about seven or eight years that looks at um, infection and immunity in, in, in individuals and children with mitochondrial disease. Um, and it, it's run at the NIH Clinical Center. But with the introduction of COVID, people weren't able to travel anymore. So we had to come up with unique ways to be able to study this pandemic and be able to provide the community with information that would be useful to them. So we, we issued a number of online surveys, which I'll tell you um, the results of in April and May and June of uh, 2020. Um, we looked at, we set up some, some studies as well to look at infection in individuals with mitochondrial disease, any infection they may have had during times of COVID, um, as well as, um, you know, vaccination when vaccination was introduced. Um, so some of these studies I'll tell you about today, some of which are still ongoing and we are looking for more participants. So I'll give you some links at the end. But basically this was kind of our general response to COVID-19. We really you know, implemented uh, a, a strategy, kind of switched gears about how we were going to recruit individuals, did a lot of home studies. So all those things I'll tell you about today. Okay, and then we have an ongoing study right now, which is about viral history and mitochondrial disease. And this is um, something I'll tell you about at the end, which is also an at-home participation study. Okay, so every, a lot of people are familiar with the mini study. Many families have come to visit us already, and we're very thankful for that. As I said, there are partners in research. Um, and the purpose of this study is to understand why people with mitochondrial disease decline during infection. And this is an important step in kind of improving um, their care and well-being. So this is a study, as I said, that's been going on for about seven or eight years. Um, and Eliza Gordon-Lipkin um, is the pediatric neurologist and neurodevelopmental specialist who works on this study. And so if you come here to the NIH Clinical Center, she will, she is the, um, myself and her are the primary physicians that take care of you. Um, and then Shannon uh, Crook, who many people are familiar with as well, is the nurse who, the research nurse who runs the study. Um, who uh, communicates with a lot of families. So a lot of people know Shannon really well. We, we joke that Shannon's actually our boss because um, Shannon really just, she runs everything. Um, so this is the NIH mini study. As I said, it's a natural history study of infection and immunity. So we look at things like infection history in individuals with mitochondrial disease, um, not only what they tell us, but by blood, we can look at their infection history and see what they've been exposed to. We look at immune function because immunity is an important part of being able to protect yourself against viral infections and fight off viral infections. And then we look at their disease and, and how much disability their disease may cause them, whether their disease has progressed as a result of infection. So these are kind of the three main goals. And then this here on the left is the NIH Clinical Center. So this is America's research hospital. So your tax dollars support all the research that goes on here. Everyone who comes to the NIH is under a clinical protocol. So specific questions are being asked about their medical conditions. So it is a very special place. Oops. Okay. So the first thing you want to do is understand early in the pandemic, the experience of mito um, the mitochondrial disease community. 
So to do that, we actually issued an online survey. And this survey went out in April and June of 2020. Um, in total, we got 688 responses and people finished about 82% of the survey. And that's great. And I wanna say thank you because surveys are not fun. They ask a lot of information. They can be very tedious, but our families and these participants are very motivated and we are very thankful for that. 30% of this population were pediatric patients. Um, the most common diagnosis was mitochondrial disease not otherwise specified. What I mean by that is you have these kind of classical mitochondrial diseases that have very that have acronyms or, or names to them. Um, and, and so mitochondrial disease not otherwise specified are kind of these more general categories of mitochondrial disease that don't fall into those specific names or acronym categories. Um, 11% of our patients also had Lee syndrome. That's important to point out because Lee syndrome patients have a very um, well-documented uh, deleterious relationship with infection where their disease can actually either present for the first time or progress with infection. So, um, so Lee syndrome families are very, very aware of infection and what it can do. 62% um, of these participants had a known pathogenic variant, so a mutation that was found in a gene known to cause mitochondrial disease. Five of the individuals at the time had COVID-19. But what's interesting is that at this time, testing was really difficult for the families. So 68 out of the, um, uh, of, of the 600, so about 10% or so, were requesting SARS-CoV-2 testing, but only 14, uh, and, and 14 were unable to receive testing. So um, there were some limitations at that point, I think, in the system in terms of peeping, people being able to obtain testing to help protect themselves and, and, and protect their families. So what were some of the symptoms that we were seeing um, from our patients at that time via this survey? So um, we weren't diagnosing COVID specifically, we were relying on self-report. So some of the things that they reported which are related to COVID-19 are things like new onset fever in about 23%, um, new onset cough, um, shortness of breath um, and pneumonia. So um, a good proportion of individuals were experiencing symptoms that were consistent with COVID-19. Also, we asked about risk factors. So whether any of the individuals had any risk factors for exposure to COVID-19. Um, so a lot of this has to do with indoor activities. And I'm kind of trying to show that here on the left. If it's hard to, to see this picture on the left, what it is is basically someone sneezing, right? So early in the pandemic, there were a lot of studies about kind of airborne transmission and, and, and basically how, how close you have to be to someone in terms of airborne transmission. That's where the six foot rule kind of came into play and all these other things. Um, and what we found in our patients with mitochondrial disease is that a lot of them still had scenarios where they would have to be indoors essentially and be exposed to other individuals. And that included things like doctor visits or ER visits or even hospitalizations. Um, the other thing too, is that we found a lot of our, our families actually had a household member or 38% had a household member, which was considered an essential worker. So while many people um, did have, you know, jobs where they were able to telework, there was a fair proportion that did not and still had to continue to go into work and interact with people, which could be a risk factor for bringing COVID-19 back to the home. Okay, so 
in general, you know, um, individuals with disorders of mitochondrial metabolism or, or any type of inborn error of metabolism in general, they have risk factors for infection. And, and, and these are some of the ones I'm listing here on the right. So they may have difficulty with swallowing or breathing because of, you know, neuromuscular problems. Um, they can have trouble with their immune system where they can't really be protected very well against infection. Um, having contact with a lot of individuals in the healthcare system, you know, things like that can increase their risk for infections. Um, depending on what type of inborn error of metabolism they have, you know, mitochondrial disease versus fatty acid oxidation disorders versus organic acidemias, they may all have different um, susceptibilities to infection. Um, hygiene, of course, is a very important part of that, as well as hospitalization. Um, the hospital, although we need to, you know, go to the hospital sometimes to be taken care of, it is a place where you can actually also catch infections. Um, and then access and devices. Some people have indwelling access, um, like lines and things like that, which can become infected. But also we assessed, what were there any, the CDC listed a number of risk factors um, for severe COVID-19. So not only do people with mitochondrial disease have mitochondrial disease, but they may actually have other, you know, conditions or what we call comorbidities, which can actually increase their risk of developing severe COVID-19. So 73% um, of the individuals we surveyed had at least one condition, which was recognized by the CDC as being a risk factor for severe COVID-19. So respiratory muscle weakness is something that can go along with mitochondrial disease, of course, as can immunodeficiency or immune dysfunction. Um, but other things like um, diseases that are not related to mitochondrial disease, like asthma, right? Asthma um, is, is a very prevalent condition in the population, a very prevalent allergic condition in the population. And people with mitochondrial disease can also have asthma and that can put them at risk for severe COVID. So there were conditions that were related directly to their mitochondrial disease and then other medical conditions, which actually could put them at risk for having severe COVID. We asked an open-ended question in this survey too, where it gave individuals an opportunity to, to express their concerns. And the re I'm just showing this one because it kind of shared, it was kind of a shared type of response that we saw amongst a lot of people. And this basically says, we are terrified that our child with Lee syndrome uh, will contract COVID-19 and or require hospitalization and experience a metabolic crisis and lose skills, developmental skills, and this will change their lives forever. Um, so, uh, so some individuals with, with mitochondrial disease, um, are a lot of individuals are very cognizant of this relationship between infection and disease progression as we term it. So during this time, you know, early during the pandemic, the CDC issued a lot of guidelines, you know, in terms of, you know, what can we do to kind of help um, protect ourselves and protect our families. And it included things like, you know, staying away six feet from people and hand washing. And then, and then later on in the pandemic, things like wearing face masks and, and things like that. So um, we wanted to ask the community, you know, and find out how adherent were they to these recommendations. So we actually conducted, this was part of our online survey, and we call these risk mitigation behaviors, right? So in other words, behaviors that you could, uh, you, you could uh, um, perform that would reduce your risk of getting COVID-19, that were recommended behaviors. So we divided them into social behaviors, um, behaviors having to do with shopping, 
um, or basically, you know, going out, out of the house, um, and then hygiene. And so with regards to social things, it, you know, uh, things like traveling or gatherings, um, limiting household visits, um, public gatherings, um, with regards to shopping stuff, you know, things like stockpiling goods, like, you know, toilet paper and things like that to kind of limit the amount of times you may have to go to the store, um, using delivery services. Um, and then in the hygiene, you know, category, things like hand washing and avoiding touching your face and, you know, some, a lot of the recommendations made by the CDC. And what we found in general is that the mitochondrial disease community is very, very, very adherent to um, a lot of these risk mitigation behaviors. And although we haven't surveyed before the pandemic, our general impression is they are more or less um, adherent with these things in general. Because before the COVID-19 pandemic, we have flu every year, flu season and the winter viruses and things like that. And families are very aware that winter is coming and there'll be a lot of viruses around. And, and so what we think is that the community is kind of used to um, implementing at least some of these factors to begin with, or some of these behaviors to begin with. So it was very, it, it wasn't a big stretch for them to uh, uh, have the motivation to do this because they, they had done a lot of this already. And on average, you know, in the, in the, fan, um, the individuals that responded um, usually engaged in about between 10 and 11 of these risk mitigation behaviors. So highly adherent and employed a lot of them, you know, in terms of trying to protect themselves or protect their families. Okay, so a lot of the stuff I talked about um, had to do with behaviors and had to do with you know, how they experienced the pandemic, but we wanted to get an idea of actual exposure in the mitochondrial disease community. Now, there was a big problem, right? Um, since a lot of individuals with mitochondrial disease and families and caregivers are very um, uh, risk averse um, with regards to infection, they didn't wanna go out in public, they didn't wanna travel to the NIH, so this was a challenge. How could we actually do this, assess the community um, when individuals were reticent to travel? And understandably so. Um, so what we did is we employed a home study that we could do where we could actually get blood and get blood sent back to us. So this was really exciting because this is a technique that we continue to use to this day, we will continue to use in the future, which really helps to open up accessibility to all members of, you know, of the mitochondrial disease community, um, especially those who can't travel. Um, so we used this um, platform called Neoterix, which is down here in the right-hand corner, which is basically a way of collecting blood from a finger stick. And this could be collected onto these kind of Q-tip looking, um, uh, uh, device and sent back to us. And we could look at things like COVID-19 antibodies and other aspects of, of, of uh, measurements of immunity. Um, so this is a really, really powerful platform that we employed during the pandemic to help reach those families to answer this important question. And we continue to use this. So our study that we did, I said, was a home-based study where we used these um, blood collection kits or neoteric sampling kits. And you can see here on the left how someone is taking blood from their finger. Um, and, and after they do so in the two tips that are here, they close up the clamshell, it's basically like a clamshell, and they send it back to us. And, and a lot of you may recognize these kits that we sent where we include lancets, 
for collecting the blood as well as, you know, band-aids and gauzes and stuff like that. And then this gets sent back to us in the blood collection box. And so we wanted to understand what was the antibody status, in other words, the indicators of infection um, in households with children with mitochondrial disease. And the reason we wanted to do this is because the household can be a risk factor for SARS-CoV-2 transmission to children with mitochondrial disease. Um, and this of course applies to other inborn errors of metabolism as well. It's not just mitochondrial disease. This just happens to be the, the population that we, we love and we study. Um, so this um, is a study that actually came out in one of the JAMA journals, which showed that the household itself can be kind of a, a hotspot for transmission. So this is what we call meta-analysis. So meta-analysis is when you take a whole bunch of studies and you put them together, you kind of combine them all and you figure out risk, you know, as a result. And this is a very powerful way of, of um, analyzing studies essentially all together. So in this, they, they put together 54 studies. It was over 77,000 participants. And they found that within the household, the attack rate, in other words, the risk of getting infection in the household was about 16%, right? So, so almost, you know, one in five, one in six, you know, somewhere around that area. Um, that's pretty significant, you know, in terms of, you know, the mitochondrial disease community or the inborn error of metabolism community in general. Um, so we wanted to ask, you know, how is this affecting the mitochondrial disease community? Could we look at antibody profiles and see who was exposed? So we conducted this study um, last year during the first major winter wave of the pandemic. So you can see here um, on the right, this is the number of COVID cases and you can see the spikes here. And this was between about October um, of um, 2020 into about the spring or so of 2021. So this was the first major winter wave. We didn't plan it that way, it just happened. And we happened to collect the samples during that time. And then in retrospect, we realized, you know what, this was the first major wave of the pandemic. We've had subsequent waves, um, but this was the first major one. So we were, we were somewhat lucky in that respect in terms of collecting our samples that we were able to capture a major spike in the number of cases and therefore risk to the population. So the families with children with mitochondrial disease, it was 20 families. And the families had one or more children with mitochondrial disease. Um, it was 83 samples in all, which averages out to about four members per family, although that does vary, which I'll show you in a minute. Um, and we used our remote sampling method. We looked at SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, right? To tell us the story of who had been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And then we also asked questions about whether they had symptoms or not. So was this infection that was detected or was it undiagnosed infection? Um, and then we collected other things um, also about the local cases in the area. Um, you know, some places had high number of cases, some places had low number of cases. And this was done just so you know, before vaccination was widely available. So you can see here down at the bottom in this green graph where we did our sampling during this time, you can see vaccination had started in December and was just starting to ramp up, um, but wasn't widely available. So the majority of our families actually were not vaccinated at all. Um, almost, almost all of them actually. Okay, so this is um, some data from our families. So some of the questions that we asked them. 
So the children themselves at mitochondrial disease, there were 22 of them, and which represents 20 families. Um, so one family, uh, two families had two children with mitochondrial disease. Um, the mean age was about 8.8. .8, so they were tweens um, and equal distributions of males and females. First, we asked about where was there either school settings happening or their jobs happening. So that was for the parents, the school setting was for the children, while the kids um, basically were mostly remote, 81% or 82% were mostly remote, the parents were a little bit more split. Some had hybrids, some had to actually go into work. So this was a potential risk factor, right, of bringing COVID into the home. Um, we next asked about as a surrogate for concern about getting COVID-19. Um, you know, uh, whether they had any COVID exposures and whether they had been tested or even been diagnosed. And so we had two individuals, one child with mitochondrial disease and one adult with mitochondrial disease that had been clinically diagnosed by their healthcare provider. Okay. So therefore the majority of the cohort was undiagnosed. So 81 out of the 83 people did not get diagnosed by a um, healthcare provider. A number of individuals sought testing during that time, so they were concerned about their risk. And then when we looked at the symptoms that they experienced, the kids with mitochondrial disease um, usually had, um, you know, if they had any symptoms at all, it was usually fever. And for the adults, it was usually um, either cough or muscle or body aches. So those, so the symptomatology was a little different between kids and adults. And that's consistent with individuals who don't have mitochondrial disease. Generally, the kids get fever, the older adults can get fever, but they tend to get like muscle aches, body aches, you know, things like that. Okay, so where were the people from? So the majority of the, of the cohort was actually from the United States. Um, we had two, two individuals that were not from the United States or two families that were not from the United States, but the majority was from the United States. And you can see here, this is the number of cases per 100,000 individuals across these different counties. So you can get these reports for your county um, or for any county in the United States. The CDC has um, this information. And so therefore, these, this is the number of cases per 100,000 at the time that their blood sample was taken and sent back to us. So, you know, it ranged. It ranged from like, you know, Goodhue County, you can see up here where it was one case per 100,000, where um, you go down to, uh, for instance, like in Texas, there were certain areas of Texas, which were like 73, you know, or 74 cases per 100,000. Now, a lot of that can depend on population and population density and things like that, but it did give us an idea of in their county where they lived, what was kind of the rates of infection that were going on. Was it high? Was it low? You know, kind of what was their risk? Okay, so what we did with those blood samples that came back to us is we tested them for COVID-19 antibodies. And so we tested against nucleocapsid, um, which is a part of the virus that's inside. We tested for spike protein, which is on the outside. Everyone's heard about spike protein. That's what the vaccine is made against. And then we looked at the receptor binding domain, which is a part of the spike protein um, where it, the virus actually binds to cells before it infects. So an important area of the spike protein. So the first thing I just want to tell you about antibodies, antibodies come in different flavors, right? Um, and antibodies are basically these little proteins that float around in your blood that protect you against infection because they bind to infectious organisms and help the immune system get rid of them. So antibodies bind to viruses, antibodies bind to bacteria, and then the immune system chews them up and gets rid of them. 
So there are, there are a couple different flavors. The two flavors that we're concerned about are IgM. IgM shows up early during an infection. So it's usually when you are, uh, start to show symptoms, IgM will come up first. So that, that tells you early part of infection. And then IgG comes up later after about a week or so, a week to 10 days, IgG starts to come up. So if you're IgM positive only, your infection was pretty recent. And if you're IgG positive only, then that means your infection was in the past. Okay, this is gonna become important in a minute. So um, we first looked at just overall, this is just a heat map of measuring the concentration of the different antibodies um, against the spike protein, against the nucleocapsid protein, and against the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. All I wanna show you is that this is the color bar at the bottom tells you as you go from blue all the way up to yellow, the concentration gets more and more and more and more. So each antibody has its own cutoff and we determine those cutoffs in terms of what's considered positive and what's considered negative. But the reason I wanted to show you this is just by eyeballing it, you can see there's, there's a good amount of yellow in there. There's a good amount of light green in there, right? These are individuals who are positive. So just by a bird's eye view of all the family members and all the individuals with mitochondrial disease, there are, a lot, there are a good number of positives in there. Okay, so let's look at what that looks like in terms of the families themselves. Okay, so these are spike diagrams or spoke, sorry, spoke diagrams. So let me just, I'll just quickly explain. It's a very simple concept. The middle of, of the diagram is the individual with mitochondrial disease, the child, right? And then surrounding that individual are the family members. So, you know, the concept is, of course, the family members form kind of a barrier around the individual with mitochondrial disease. So these are spoke diagrams. So red is considered positive. So they were positive for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. Green is considered negative and blue is considered unknown. So out of the 20 families, we had two individuals who chose not to participate. So we had almost 98% coverage of the 20 families. I would say that's really good. And so thank you very much to all the families. That was very helpful. Um, first point to make, you notice there's a lot of red, right? Every single family had one individual or more who was exposed to SARS-CoV-2 right? So of the 20 families we surveyed, they all got touched by COVID-19 in some way. All right. Um, but you'll remember from my symptom data before, a lot of them didn't really have symptoms. I think it was like 20% for the kids and for the adults. Um, you know, it was, it was somewhere around, it was less than half essentially that had, that had symptoms. So a lot of individuals didn't have symptoms and the majority of them were not diagnosed by their medical providers. So these are majority undiagnosed cases of COVID-19 in these families with mitochondrial disease and every family was touched. For the kids with mitochondrial disease, the ones in the center, right, center here, um, it was 20 out of 22 who had antibodies against um, COVID-19. So 20 out of 22 kids had been exposed to COVID-19. And so the important piece of information here is that none of them were hospitalized. None of them required doctor's visits, right? Um, and we have some theories about why that may actually have occurred. We think 
that because the families are so adherent to these risk mitigation behaviors, they may have been exposed to COVID-19, but not in a significant amount that would give them full-blown COVID, right? Enough that they would be exposed and make antibodies, maybe feel a little bit you know, under the weather, but not enough to give them full-blown COVID. And same thing with the kids. So therefore, our hypothesis is that the risk mitigation behaviors may have protected them against um, you know, having more full-blown disease. It may also be that children with mitochondrial disease are like children without mitochondrial disease, right? Children without mitochondrial disease in general do very well with COVID, right? They, they experience less symptoms. They're more likely to be asymptomatic. Um, but the important thing to realize here too, for this pandemic or any other infections that come down the road, the household can be an important factor in transmission to the child with mitochondrial disease. So practicing those risk mitigation behaviors, hand washing, things like that during flu season can be very important. Okay, was there household transmission? We think so, because if you look at the timing, the antibody profiles can reflect the timing of infection. As I said, IgM comes early, IgG comes late. You can see here in the center for family number 15, there were two individuals, two children with mitochondrial disease. They are IgM positive for receptor binding domains. So they have antibodies that are IgM, right? Against SARS-CoV-2. One of two of the family members are IgG positive. So they're older, they had it before. They had it before the kids did. So it's possible that they could have transmitted to the children. Okay. So those are our SARS-CoV-2 studies, our antibody studies. We are continuing to do these studies now. We're finishing up our second year study now. Um, thank you again to the families who, are, who have participated. So we have their profiles from last year and now we'll have their profiles from this year and see what their exposures have been. Um, so we um, are continuing to do this study. But this is a study that we actually continue to do not only during the pandemic, but we will continue to do this for years to come because we need to learn what viruses the children with mitochondrial disease don't do well with and what ones do they tolerate just fine. Is it a specific virus that causes them problems or is it viral infection in general? Is it, you know, this is the first step to really learning, you know, um, which viruses may be um, problematic. So we continue to do these studies every year and we are inviting more families to participate. You, uh, if you can't travel to the NIH, you can participate at home um, and we can send the kids to you at home. Okay, so besides SARS-CoV-2, can we look at what other viruses, you know, people may have been exposed to? So this is part of our ongoing study, which I mentioned because there's rhinovirus, there's flu virus, flu virus, there's parainfluenza virus. There are all these respiratory and GI bugs that we all get exposed to every year. So this is part of us learning which viruses do they tolerate, which viruses do they not tolerate. So we can do this in the home. Um, but this study that I'm showing you is a study that we did prior to COVID-19. Okay. So this is a study where we took serum from patients who came to visit us here at the NIH and basically looked for antibodies against any virus they may have ever experienced in their life, okay? Um, so we do this using something called phage display library. And basically what you, the, the basic gist of it is, the library 
has all viral proteins in it. To all, and all those viral proteins represent any virus which can infect a human being. So we look to see, we basically use that library to fish out antibodies. And that tells us which viruses you've been exposed to in your lifetime or during a certain block of time from year to year. So this is a very powerful way to assess all the different viruses at once. Any virus that can infect a human being all at once. Very, very powerful. And this is basically like a forensic investigation. That's why I'm showing this kind of fingerprint here on the side, like it's CSI or something. This is basically like a CSI investigation of the, uh, the, the virus or the criminals um, that basically perform the crime in the past. And we do that by looking at antibodies against viruses. So this is a really important platform called VIRSCAN. Um, so viral scanning, VIRSCAN, which uh, has been published many, many times. It's a very robust platform. It's great for looking at viral exposures. Um, so what viral, so what you can do is you can take those viral proteins and determine from those viral proteins, what viruses were you exposed to? So we looked at um, 16 patients with mitochondrial disease and 16 controls. So these are children. So these are age and sex matched children. And then we looked at children with mitochondrial disease who are on immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Now the reason, so that's the MD with IRT at the bottom, immunoglobulin replacement therapy. The reason we looked at them separately is because they are getting antibodies by either subcutaneous or by vein, which basically means that they are getting antibodies that are from anywhere between uh, 10 to 100 different people that are pooled together and given to them as a medication. So basically their antibodies are probably gonna be a lot more diverse and recognize a lot more different antibodies because it comes from 10 to 100 different people. Um, so that's kind of what we call a positive control, right? It shows us how diverse, you know, how many different viruses can a single individual actually even recognize um, because they're given this drug IVIG or immunoglobulin, um, which helps protect them against infection. So you can see here in controls in children without mitochondrial disease, they experience a roughly around 14 different infections in their lifetime. Um, and these individuals also were about tween age. Um, so somewhere around 10 or so. Um, and same thing with the kids with mitochondrial disease, about 14 different infections that, that sometimes goes up to about 20 or so for a number of individuals. Um, and these were tweens as well. And then you can see the individuals who get immunoglobulin replacement therapy should have more, right? They're getting immunoglobulins from adults and the adults have seen a lot of different viruses in their lifetime. So therefore it's not surprising that they see more viruses. It's somewhere around 20 viruses, different, different viruses or so. So this doesn't tell you how many times they were exposed to that virus because you can be exposed to the same virus over and over and over again. It just tells you how many different viruses they've been exposed to. Okay, so as you can imagine, the older you are, the more viruses you should have been exposed to. Um, so therefore it should have somewhat of a linear relationship to it, right? A straight line. As you get older, as you age, the, your number of viral exposures go up. So the number of viruses you've been exposed to should go up or the number of different types of viruses you should have should go up. So when we looked at controls, 
you can see that they have the line that you're really looking at is the line here in the middle, the blue line. And that kind of looks very similar to this graph on the left where it seems to be going up at an angle. So as you get older, you get exposed to more viruses. Well, the kids with mitochondrial disease don't, that line doesn't look the same. It's kind of flatter, right? You can see here it's more flat. So the relation, there doesn't seem to be a relationship in kids with mitochondrial disease between age and viral exposures. And the reason is because they get a lot more infections when they're younger. They don't have this relationship, this linear relationship. So there is something different about kids with mitochondrial disease and when they seem to get infections. What are the infections? Here's the hit list. Here are the things that you or your kids go through every year, potentially, or over a number of years. Rotavirus, right? That's a diarrheal illness. So you have rotavirus A and rotavirus B. Enterovirus, another enteric or GI bug. Um, human beta herpes virus. So this is something you may have heard of. It's called slap cheek, where the kids get a high fever and look like they've been slapped in their cheek. Um, you also have RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Orthopneumovirus, another respiratory infection. Rhinovirus, another slap cheek virus, right? And essentially it's the same. It doesn't matter whether you have mitochondrial disease or you do not, you get essentially the same viruses. They're either diarrhea viruses, you know, GI bugs, or they're respiratory viruses, but they're essentially the same viruses. What was interesting is that when we looked at some of the kids who were all, who were younger, who were less than 10, they also seem to be exposed more often to herpes simplex virus, right? So this is down here at the bottom. This is essentially what's called a heat map. And the heat map looks at, the basic gist of it is the greener it is, the more likely they've been exposed to that virus. So you can see the kids with mitochondrial disease on the right. You can see, as I said, the rotavirus here, the enterovirus, all these other viruses. But at the bottom, only the kids with mitochondrial disease seem to be only, are the only ones to seem to have been exposed to HSV-1 and the controls were not. And that's kind of interesting. That's something that we're looking into. By the way, HSV, herpes simplex virus one, causes cold sores, right? Um, and usually the, the kids who tend to get those cold sores are older than the age of 10 or so. So they're like middle schoolers or somewhere in that area. These kids were younger, right? So, so that's the difference. Although the controls eventually probably will get these cold sores, the kids with mitochondrial disease seem to get them younger. Okay. Now, how about the viral proteins, right? So in other words, these antibodies recognize viral proteins. So how many different viral proteins do they recognize? Well, the controls, it's somewhere around 400 something, same thing for the kids with mitochondrial disease. So overall, they're recognizing the same number of viral proteins. Their antibodies recognize the same number of viral proteins. As you would expect, <coughs> if you have immunoglobulin replacement therapy, you recognize more, right? Because this is pooled immunoglobulin from adults who've been exposed to more stuff. Okay, now, can we make any comparisons between mitochondrial disease and controls? So if, if that's the case, then we gotta look at the same proteins. In other words, which proteins were the controls exposed or which proteins the controls have antibodies against, which proteins do the mitochondrial disease have antibodies against, and then we can look at the quality of the antibody response. So it turns out that in mitochondrial disease and controls, they share 133 proteins. 
16 are unique to mitochondrial disease, 63 are unique to controls, but they share 133. So let's look at those 133, right? Because both of them recognize the same proteins, the same 133, and let's see if we can pick out any differences in the antibody response. So basically we looked at how strong is the antibody response? How many antibodies do they make? You know, so overall in general, kids with, and with mitochondrial disease, you can see the lines here tend to go down. They make less antibodies against the same viral proteins. So in other words, their immune response and their ability to make antibodies against viral proteins is less robust. They don't make as many antibodies against the same viral protein. That's, that's maybe why when they get infections, the infections last for longer. Maybe they're more likely to get infections. We don't know yet, but what we do know is that their antibody response is less robust. Okay, what about each protein? Each protein can be recognized by different antibodies, right? Because the proteins have different areas on them, which can be recognized by different antibodies. And that's called polyclonality where a single protein is recognized by multiple different antibodies. And more, the more polyclonal you are, the more likely you are to be protected because you have more different antibodies recognizing the same protein. So um, overall, this is the number of proteins with polyclonality. They're about the same, but we have to compare apples and apples, not apples and oranges. So when we compare apples and apples, it turns out that 54 proteins were seen, were, were recognized by antibodies um, that have polyclonality um, for controls and mitochondrial disease. It was seven unique to controls and five unique to mitochondrial disease. We don't want to look at those, right? Because that's comparing apples and oranges. Comparing apples to apples, we find that they're less polyclonal. In other words, for each of those proteins, there are fewer number of antibodies in mitochondrial disease that recognize that single protein. So once again, that, that suggests that they, are, they may be less able to fight off infection, essentially, or protect themselves against infection. Okay, so in summary, infection in general, mitochondrial disease is inevitable. The kids with mitochondrial disease may have limitations to their antibody repertoire. It may be less diverse. They may be able to produce less um, numbers of antibodies. So that's what I mean by robustness and polyclonality. And so therefore, um, it's important to start building a compendium, you know, in other words, understanding which viruses they've been exposed to. And we're continuing to do that. And we're looking for more families to participate. Okay, last thing, vaccine hesitancy, and then, and then I'm done. Let's just take a minute. Okay, so we next wanted to look at since the vaccine was coming out, um, what were individuals with mitochondrial disease, well, their caregivers, what were their attitudes towards vaccination? Because this was an important way of trying to control the pandemic. So as a baseline, we asked them about other vaccinations. So the annual flu shot. So we, we used the Pew data. So the Pew Research, Research Center is an important um, public health research center, which collects data on the United States population. So it gives us an idea of how the US as a whole thinks in terms of um, uh, various questions you can ask them. So with regards to the annual flu shot, only about half of the country um, receives the annual flu shot. 
Whereas for mitochondrial disease, pa uh, parents or caregivers, it's about 70% and children with mitochondrial disease, it's also about 70%. So that's much better than a general population. What about the COVID-19 vaccine? So this is when the COVID-19 vaccine was just being released. So the, so the data reflect a certain time point. Um, so here you can see that while um, overall the general population, um, uh, about 70% said they intended on getting the COVID-19 vaccination um, and 80% of caregivers, um, it was, it was it was lower than the caregivers and kind of similar to the general population for children with mitochondrial disease. So we want to ask, well, why, you know, why was that? Why, why were they not similar to caregivers essentially? And it really had to do with confidence in the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. So unfortunately, there was a lot of confusing information that was going around, despite the best efforts of people to try and make things clear. And so therefore, there were some, uh, there were obviously doubts that were uh, within the community. Um, so you can see this here is the Pew data, and it looks at basically um, their confidence in the COVID-19 vaccine, its safety and efficacy, and in general, um, the population was somewhere around, was this 27% where they didn't have much confidence. Um, uh, and for the general population, this is another survey where it's around 22%. For patients with mitochondrial disease, it's higher. They don't have as much confidence in the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. This is when it was initially being introduced. And so here's part of the reason. So one of the reasons is that they're concerned that their child with mitochondrial disease will become sick or deteriorate after vaccines. And that is for the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's actually higher than other vaccines that the child may receive, whether it's flu vaccine or pneumonia vaccine or the various childhood vaccines that they may receive. Um, they were more concerned about the COVID-19 vaccine. So there was something there with the messaging which was not getting across and not, not helping um, ease their concerns. Um, the other thing that the other question we asked was about the benefits. The benefits of the following vaccines outweigh the risks. Um, the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, once again, they they, they either um, um, there was higher levels of uh, a disagreement here, or neither agreeing or disagreeing. Um, so let less once again, this goes along with the confidence issue. They seem to be less confident um, in the vaccine. Okay, and the reason this is important is. As I said, the family can be an important part of, of you know, um, uh, transmission for COVID-19. And if people are somewhat hesitant um, for their child with mitochondrial disease to get vaccinated, the main thing that we're really trying to push, yes, we would like the child to be vaccinated, but if they have reservations, then the family should engage in ring vaccination. So in other words, everyone around the individual with mitochondrial disease, whoops, sorry, um, should get vaccinated, right? Um, to help protect or form a ring of protection around the individual with mitochondrial disease. Okay, the post-vaccine registry, um, that's an ongoing study which we are um, uh, still conducting where you can participate in it. So for individuals who have been vaccinated, who have mitochondrial disease, we would like to hear about what their experience has been with that. Okay, so in summary, individuals with mitochondrial disease have risk factors for adverse outcomes of COVID-19 that not only has to do with their mitochondrial disease, but they have other things like asthma or other medical conditions which can increase their risk. Families with, with mitochondrial disease are highly adherent to risk mitigation behaviors. 
COVID-19 was widespread. Basically, infection was inevitable, inescapable, but maybe the risk mitigation behaviors helped from the kids really getting sick. Um, vaccine hesitancy does occur in the mitochondrial disease community, at least at the beginning when vaccines were being introduced. We don't know yet. This is an ongoing assessment as far as um, how vaccination is going now. But this, of course, because of home-based infections and um, vaccine hesitancy, ring vaccination is really important, right? Other members surrounding the individual with mitochondrial disease should be vaccinated. And we have a number of studies that are ongoing, including studies about viral exposures, as I mentioned, infections, um, as well as the vaccine registry, which is the people who've been vaccinated um, for COVID-19. I'd like to thank uh, MitoAction for inviting me to uh, talk, as well as the other family groups um, that have invited me to talk in the past and work with us very closely on all of our studies to help us recruit individuals. Thank you so much to the families. As I said, we are partners in this endeavor and we will continue to serve you um, uh, in the future. Thank you very much and I'll take any questions. Sorry, I ran right at the hour. No, it's good. Thank you so much, Dr. McGuire. That is great information. So we have, a, have had a couple of questions come in. The first question is, um, how long can you test positive for antibodies after having COVID? Yeah, so that's a great question. So that is an ongoing question, even in the general medical community, as far as how long the COVID antibodies last. In general, some of the data that I've kind of seen says about six months or so. Um, Early during the infection, as I said, you'll have IgM antibodies, which come up. Those are some of the first ones followed by IgG. What they're talking about is the persistence of IgG because IgM only lasts about two or three months. And that's kind of like first line of defense that gets replaced by a better model. And that better model is IgG. And so IgG, it looks like it's about six months or so. And that's the basis for the recent recommendation, actually that we were talking about before, um, in terms of the next booster, right? They say, um, if you're six months out from your last booster and you're in a risk group and 60 or above or 50 with issues, um, you should have that. So six months is about that timeline for IgG, the long lasting. IgG can, for other infections, last, like measles, for instance, it lasts decades. It lasts your entire mm -hmm. life. Um, COVID, for some reason, only seems to be a short period of time. Interesting. Um, so is there indication that the exposure, exposure to SARS-CoV-2, even if it didn't lead to symptoms, might confer additional protection against future expose, exposures to COVID? Yeah, so that so that's a great question. That was something that was definitely a hypothesis that was entertained early during the pandemic in general, right? Because coronaviruses have been with us for a long time, even though SARS-CoV-2 um, is is a newer version of it, right? Coronaviruses cause the common cold. They've been around forever. You probably have been exposed to it every year. So the question was: the spike protein is essentially the same or very similar on those cold virus coronaviruses versus the new SARS-CoV-2. So there was always this question of whether it would confer protection. Um, so what I can say is there seems to be some cross cross reactivity or protection cross protection. Um, but we're not sure yet whether that, we, we really don't have any predictors to say whether down the line that is going to protect you. So those are studies that are ongoing, you know, just in the general SARS-CoV-2 community or COVID-19 community, seeing whether um, previous infection will protect you and how long it will protect you. So it's kind of an ongoing question, but, but 
the, the, the bright side is there is a relationship between those spike yeah. proteins. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's possible, but we don't, we don't know all the information yet. Interesting. Kit, is there any correlation to the intensity of symptoms and the impacts of long-term effects of COVID? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the answer to that yet, because um, what I can say is at this point, the answer may be no. So um, the reason I say that is because there are individuals who uh, were asymptomatic, not in our cohort, sorry. I mean, individuals who had yeah. COVID, who don't have mitochondrial disease. There were individuals who were asymptomatic who actually have long COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, they didn't experience the cough, the muscle aches, the whole thing, or if they did, it was very minimal or they didn't even notice it, but yet they have long COVID symptoms. So at this point, they don't seem to correlate, but 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 I don't know. I mean, the, the data are still coming out. So maybe they will find that if you have a, a, you know, a really strong case of COVID, maybe it is a predictor. But right now it doesn't. You, you can be essentially asymptomatic or what we call oligosymptomatic, very few symptoms, and yet still have long COVID. So interesting. It, I mean, there's just so much more to learn. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Can you know, so one of the things that we talked a little bit about this, right, we've gone all this time masking and yes things that we normally are exposed to, right? Our bodies may not have as much resistance to as they would prior to masking all the time. So like, how do we know, you know, we have symptoms, we have a cough, we have a cold, they mimic mild COVID symptoms. Do we always just go and get tested or make sure, or, you know, how do we distinguish between it's just, it's just the common cold or it could it potentially be COVID? Like that's a hard distinction to make. Because right. we were conditioned that every symptom was COVID for such a long time. No, absolutely. So on, on the upside, right, testing has become more, I would say, readily available. Home testing is better. It's not, you know, it's not perfect. I'm not going to give it that designation, right? Um, yeah. But it definitely has become more available. So, you know, at least I would say in the interim, while the pandemic is still going on, right, and Europe is having another surge right now, and the, the um, you know, the timeline of how things usually work is we're about three weeks behind Europe mm -hmm. um, in terms of our spike, right? So in the meantime, I would say continue to entertain if you are symptomatic, whether you may actually have COVID, right? Because there are certain things that you could do. There are medications that potentially, you know, you'd have to discuss it with your provider, but there are potentially medications that could be used, you know, in the early stages of COVID now. Um, so um, in the meantime, I think we still have to be a little bit vigilant about it. Um, but the nice part about what's going on with Omicron right now is even though there does seem to be a surge, just to try and give some people some light at the end of the tunnel, it yeah, doesn't yeah. seem to be that hospitalizations are increasing and mm -hmm. deaths are increasing at a really significant rate. So, um, so it's, it, it may not be as you know, strong as Delta or maybe because a lot of the populations either already been infected or vaccinated that, you know, there's, there's a lot more protection out there, especially for vulnerable groups. So um, long story short, in the meantime, I do think we should still remain a little bit vigilant about it, but it will eventually, you know, it will eventually reach a point where you won't be thinking about doing that because it, it will, there will be other things that you potentially could be exposed to. 
Right. And one last question. Um, are you looking at EVUSHIELD, E-V-U-S-H-E-L-D for mito patients? We, we are not specifically, and I don't know, I, to be honest, I don't know of anyone who is looking specifically at that. Okay, thank you for that answer. So thank you so much, Dr. McGuire. These past few years have weighed heavily on all of us. So many unanswered questions about COVID and its impact on the rare disease community, decisions about vaccinations, how to, how to best protect our community, but yet try to return to some semblance of normal. Our families often have said that COVID provided an opportunity to those not impacted by a rare disease to get a glimpse into their lives, right? Absolutely. Having to wear masks when, when going out, keeping distances from families and loved ones so they don't get exposed to disease and having to make some really different, difficult decisions day to day to ensure that our mito community remains safe. So we appreciate you sharing this information with us. Um, I, the ring of protection, right? We all are responsible for that ring of protection. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about that. I, you know, I'm going to be coming up for my second booster shot. And even though nobody in my household has a rare disease, because I'm connected to patients, I have a responsibility to be that ring of protection for them. Um, and so it takes us all doing our part to make sure that those who are immune compromised are safe. Um, so I appreciate you sharing this. Um, Dr. McGuire, could you share with us one more time, if people are interested in joining the study, how do they reach yeah. out to your team to connect to the study? Yeah. So uh, let's see, is my screen still up? Let's see. Yes. Oh, there we go. So www.genome.gov slash M-I-N-I, or you can email ministudy at mail.nih.gov. So I would Correct. encourage everyone to participate. It's a simple way to share and to be a part of research and to make a huge impact for our community. So I would encourage every member of our community to participate in that study and you can do it right from home. And, and we actually have a number of studies going on so people can choose what they wish to participate in. And exactly, they can do a lot of them at home. Um, so if, if, if they're still a little bit reticent about traveling, we can help accommodate that and work with the families. Wonderful, right? Everyone has an opportunity to do their part and you've done everything to make it as easy as possible for that to happen. So as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website in the coming days for anyone who would like to listen again or share with others. You can also find the full catalog of the expert series presentations on the MitoAction website and on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Spotify. We thank each and every one of you for joining us today for our monthly Mito Expert Series. Again, Dr. McGuire, thank you for the, all the work that you do on behalf of the Mito and rare disease community. You are truly a champion for this community, and we are beyond grateful for you. And we appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. And we look forward to staying in touch. Until next time. Take, Take care. care everyone.